when we, when we planted Antioch, it was an interesting thing, just as a church planter, you come into the public launch, we were at the Regal Cinemas, if you know that story, and, and planning for what do you say on, on the first Sunday of a church plant, pub, the public launch, really, of a church plant. We had 30 people that were kind of meeting in a home for months and months and months, and then on a, on a Sunday in October, uh, four years ago, 2006, we had this kind of public launch. And what do you say? And I, I came to faith at age 22, and people didn't know what to do with me. I mean, I, the most discouraging people in my life were Christians. I was like crazy radical, just I'm going to drop out of engineering, and I'm going to go preach the gospel, and I'm going to this, and I'm going to that. And, and it wasn't like fraternity brothers that were like, wow, you're crazy. It was the Christians that were like, whoa, slow down, like you're too radical, you're too crazy, like, that's stupid, don't do anything foolish, you know, um, God wouldn't want you to follow him wholehearted, you know, be smart and stay in this comfortable, like, you know, good American, and it was the craziest thing how discouraging Christians were to me for like a year, year and a half, um, and the church, I looked around, this was the 90s, this was uh, 95, and I looked around and all the churches were catering to, to the, that kind of Christianity of like, man, just show up at church and you'll be given five steps on how to be happier and three steps on how to have a better uh, who knows what and four steps on a better golf game. I, I, it was just all really self-helpish. Uh, and I've, that's all I've kind of been around in American Christianity for a long time. So I see it as the great evil Myself doesn't need to be helped. Myself is fundamentally flawed. It needs a savior. Um, this self has to, the self that just wants to look out for itself, that's always trying to maximize self, protect self, um, needs, needs to die and be replaced by a new self that loves God, that loves others, that just throws his hands up and says, the only place I want to be found is with God, following God, and, and all this other petty silliness, this, this other stuff, like, I don't want it. And I see this whole, let's just throw self-help techniques at Christians. So, you know, God's over there, but we're going to give him hammers and screws, and we're going to give him all these tools to, to feel better, but not really deal with the fundamental issue that God is, is waiting for us to lay all that down and for him to, to save us. I mean, baptism is, the old self is like dead and there's a new self that doesn't try to look good, play by the, I mean, be successful according to the world standards. It's like a bad self-help plan. It's die to yourself. I mean, which self-help guru would make a lot of money if they were like, forget the self, just die to it. I mean, you don't make a lot of money in the self-help world saying that. You make a lot of money saying, if you do these things, you'll be rich, and you'll be better than everybody else. You'll have abundance and all this kind of stuff. So as we were looking at that first Sunday, I kind of said, you know what, I'll just, <laughs> we're not trying to waste people's time, and we're not trying to offend God by just playing games. Like, we're here so that needy people, people who need God, would find God. Um, and have a meaningful interaction that, that God saves sinners and we're sinners. And so we want to be saved by God. We don't want to hang on to anything. We want to just let it all go. Wash the whole thing, not just part of me. And so the first sermon, we, we, and we, we kicked off a whole sermon series with it, was called Come and Die. This is the invitation. Um, come and die. And it was kind of just 
it was a really bad idea for a church planter on the first Sunday to tell people, come and die. Like, it was just, especially in 2006, it was just like, that stupid. You don't grow a church that way. Um, but it was like, conviction-wise, man, that's the only message I've got. It's shown up in a lot of different ways. Some of you are sick of it, maybe you heard it. The theme, you know, week in, week out, a whole series on give your life away. And, I mean, at the root of it, though, is that's the whole message, it's been the whole message, my message at least, um, when I'm here talking to Antioch. And so this four-year anniversary, like I was kind of this last couple weeks thinking about it, and I was kind of like, man, it's almost like the question is if there was one sermon that I could preach, what would it be? Is that kind of question again, like that, that initial launch question, like if there was any one message, what would it be? And it, it's the same message. Nothing's changed, and, and so... What kind of crystallized in my mind is a different way of coming at it, and in some ways, maybe even a more practical way of coming at it. And so, um, I want to read a verse for you out of Proverbs. And it's a verse that I, uh, I mean, I've heard a lot, saw a lot, and it was always one of those yeah, yeah verses. And so, in Proverbs, we read this Proverbs chapter 9. Um, it's a verse on the fear of God and wisdom. It's a pretty recognizable verse. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's one of those ones, like those are both fear, fear of God and wisdom. Those aren't like energy words. You know what I mean? It's not like ice cream. You know, ice cream, like, oh, really? You know, like, well, what kind? I mean, they're, they're like, they get you going, and all of a sudden you're like, you, it's got your attention. You know what I'm saying? They're power words. They're, they're exciting words. They're energetic words. Fear God and wisdom are crusty and old and kind of like, ah, there's got to be some better words out there. Let me focus on those. I mean, they're, they're those ones that you kind of look at and you say, yeah, yeah. I, I, God, wisdom, I get it. God and wisdom probably go together. Yeah, let me move on. And it reminds me of the yeah, yeahs that you have for mom. I don't know what it's like for women or girls, or whatever. I was a boy. Um, and, uh, and with my mom, it was always yeah, yeah. Um, you need to chew with your mouth closed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you need to not pick fights with your sister. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, you need to eat your vegetables so you can grow big and strong which was a lie. Um, (laughs) But if you, you know what I'm talking about. There's those things that like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I'm sure it's true and whatever, but I I don't have energy for it. And if you trace that all the way back, I think you get to age five and somewhere in there, there's the straightforward thing that's, I'm your mom, I'm your parent, and you need to do what I say. And you kind of know the right answer and you kind of nod your head, yeah, yeah. But there's got to be some better options out there. So I'll find them and it'll probably be when you're not looking. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll figure out how to, to make that work. But, but the yeah, yeah thing is really inbred in us that way. We, we, with those low energy, low passion, non-ice cream, I mean, because when my kids like here, ice cream, it's like all of a sudden, two minutes, the whole house is cleaned. You know, they heard everything about it. There was no, like, trying to get around. I mean, it's right down the middle. 
And there's verses in scripture that are like that. And this was always one of them for me. And I think it was, so I never really dealt with it straight on. And so I never really got the heart of it. And so what I want to do is I want to dive a little deeper and kind of show what the Bible means by this. And then I want to try and pull us out of that and apply it a little bit. Um, but what, what does it really mean by fear God? That statement is in hundreds of places in the Bible. Fear the Lord, which is like uh, different, you know, when you see capital letters in the Old Testament, it's different names of God. Fear God, you see fear God, fear the Lord, all these. It's like, what's up with all the fear? Um, well, here's, here's where it kind of comes from. So if you'll turn with me, I want to show you a couple different passages. We'll start in Exodus. Now, the, the narrative is like this. You have this people group that are descendants of Abraham, and they're in slavery in Egypt. So if you saw the Disney movie, Prince of Egypt, you know what I'm talking about. But there's all these people that are enslaved in Egypt, and they don't really know who God is. They might have known Abraham and that Abraham worshipped a God, so they understand maybe the idea of the God of Abraham, but they don't really know who God is, so that when Moses is being commissioned by God, God's like, man, I want to send you to go get those people, my people, and I want you to bring them out of that slavery. Moses is like, who who do I tell them sent me? They They don't know you. I mean, I don't think we, we've all grown up kind of knowing God, the Christian God, the idea of the Christian God, whatever. But these people, they don't know God yet. To the point where Moses is like, well, who do I, what do I call you? And God names himself right then, you know, I am, that I am, I am who I am, I am. Okay, if you are, I'll tell him. Uh, and so Moses goes, he tells this Pharaoh, um, there's this guy who is, uh, and he says, let his people go. And Moses is like, uh, what, what have you been eating in the desert? You know, like, um, you're on drugs. And so God does these miracles. These miracles demonstrate increasingly his power and size. Do you understand that's what's going on with the miracles? I don't care what God thinks, that guy that calls himself I am. Um, It's like Prince, you know, or artist formerly known as. What what kind of name is I am anyways? I don't care what that guy says about these people. Each, Each miracle, all the way up to losing the firstborn sons, all of a sudden make Pharaoh care about who this God is. So the miracles take, increase the size of God, the power of God, the reputation of God. And then Pharaoh finally says, take these people and get out of here. Moses takes the people, they bundle everything up, they go out into the desert, they make it across the Red Sea, which is kind of the symbol for we're finally out of there now. We don't have to look over our shoulder. We've, we've made good on our escape. Okay, let's take a deep breath. What's going on? And Moses now comes to the people. God's telling Moses how it's going to go. And they're going to meet God. They don't know who God is. They're going to meet their God. So it's really interesting. So there's this whole time of getting themselves uh, clean. When you go to meet your new in-laws, you know, when you go to someone's house for Thanksgiving dinner for the first time, you, you get your Sunday best on. You know what I'm saying? 
you clean, you shave, you, you put on your nice clothes, you get symbolically presentable. And that's what it meant here in the Old Testament when they were becoming ceremonially clean. They were becoming clean for that ceremony. Ceremonial clean. Holy. Set apart. So they, they, they take, they're ready, they're, they're all getting ready. I mean, imagine you're in the middle of the desert with, you know, all these, you know, thousands and thousands of people and everybody's just sitting around getting ready to go meet God and you kind of get the Sunday best on and then you go to meet God and this isn't on the screen, but in verse 19 is kind of the first time here and Moses takes them to Mount Sinai and uh, in verse 19 in chapter 19, verse 20, it says this, the Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. Moses went up to him and he said, warn these people and, and even the priests and the Levites. And then Moses says to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us, put limits around this place where I am. And then the Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you and the priests. And so he does that. And then the 10 commandments are spoken. And then in verse 18 of chapter 20, it's this. And when the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. Can you imagine like, you know, all these people, you got your Sunday best on, you go out to meet God and all of a sudden it's so awesome and, and scary and, and big and you, you kind of shrink back and you just like, I, I don't know what I'm going to do here. Um, it would be better if you just mediated Moses because I want to keep a safe distance. I mean, can you picture it? I, uh, I went to Clemson, and I remember my freshman year, the, the post office had this little walkthrough, and I swung around one corner of the post office, and if you're a football player, you might remember this name, but there was Chester McLaughlin. Chester McLaughlin, he played for the Raiders for a bunch of years, but he was a senior at Clemson, defensive line, and the guy was like 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, 3,000 pounds, um, just the biggest human being I've ever seen in my life. I mean, unbelievably huge, and, uh, and so... I come around the corner and all of a sudden like I'm, I'm, a quarter of me is going right up against where Chester, Chester McLaughlin's coming. And I, you know, he was like three or four feet away, but just the angles, you know, in the shadow. And, uh, and I turned the corner and I actually started reeling backwards. And I remember to this day, it was the, it's the crazy experience. There's this little thought in my mind that said, if that guy falls on you, you could really, really be hurt. He was big. Um, instinctively, with that animal part of us, when something is that big, that scary, that threatening, I mean, bears are like that. It's like it, it doesn't matter whether the bear is mad at me or not. The point is, is if he decided to get mad, like, all he'd need is one second. You know what I mean? So I want to keep my distance just because the raw potential represented there, I got, I got to respect that. And here are these people, they come to this mountain that's just going crazy, and they're just like, whoa, who, it, this is supposed to be our God? Who, you know, what's, I'm scared. I'll submit, I'll bow a knee, I'll defer, I'll tap out, I'll, 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 I mean, I'm scared. 
you know, so you tell, you tell us what you want, God. Say it through that guy. He can carry the message over and, and we'll do it. If you look over to verse 24, you see this. Moses goes up to the mountain and he's going to be given the tablets, the stone tablets, with those Ten Commandments on it. And he takes Joshua a certain point and then he leaves Joshua even and he goes up on the mountain. Look what it says in chapter 24, verse 15. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. It's almost like God, who's very distant, became very present. The transcendent God became imminent, meaning right here, right now, in the form of like the Holy Spirit, like this cloud is over this mountain and God is dwelling in the cloud. Like his presence is there. And for six days, the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. And to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. A consuming fire is, think of it, it's a, it's a fire that is so intense that it's, you know it's going to consume whatever's in it. You understand the word, I mean, just the metaphor there? Uh, you know, you go with a bunch of junior hires to the beach. You're like, oh, let's do a bonfire. And then like little junior high boys do, they don't have any kind of sense of maturity. Um, they, they take the fire and it's like, okay, that's, that's a nice big warm fire. And then they keep going, and they're like throwing their friends in the fire, and the fire keeps getting, you know, I mean, the junior high boys, their whole thing is there's no stop. We're going we're gonna to tear down every house, get all the firewood we could possibly get in the universe, and we're going to get it on that fire. And at some point, the adults begin going, whoa, that fire will consume anything that gets close to it. And, and you start kind of backing up and wanting other people to back up, and you're beginning to worry about like, you know, girls with hairspray, their hair spontaneously combusting at 20 feet, you know. And uh, I mean, but it's like this idea of like, wow, that fire is now not under control. It's out of control. We don't control it. It is its own animal and it's scary. And so these people are standing back and this whole mountain looks like a consuming fire and it's like, whoa, if you got close to that, it would suck you in. We don't control it. It's scary. And so they stand back with reverence and awe and a degree of fear. So in Deuteronomy, we flip over. Deuteronomy chapter 4. We see this. It's uh, verse 23. It says, Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. How many things did God forbid? I mean, you you look at the law, and there's a lot of things forbidden. And if you take and turn anything forbidden into an idol, it sets itself up against God. An idol is not just wood, not just a representative thing. It's a categorical thing. It's something that replaces God as the center of gravity in your life. Do not make for yourself an idol. Don't, I mean, rule number one in the book of God is what? You're going to have no other gods but me. There's no other center of gravity, nothing bigger than me. 
Nothing else should have you so scared that you bow to it more than you bow to me. And it continues and it says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. This God is a consuming fire. You don't control him. It's out of control. It's wild in some sense. And you got to be careful with it. You can't get too close. You can't wear hairspray. You can't do, because that fire will consume you. It can consume you. So the little like uh, hibachi grill over here, you, you don't give it the reverence that you should be giving to this fire that's inappropriate. You're making something smaller look bigger and you're making the bigger thing look smaller. And both of these things, uh, there's words for it. That would be idolatry. This would be profaning the name of God. It would be using the name of God inappropriately, which is what, what rule in the book of God? We start over here. Don't do this. And then we move over here about don't use the Lord's name in vain. And it's like the idea is this consuming fire that's so much bigger and crazier and wilder and out of your control. You can't box it down and make it less than it really is. That's taking something holy and treating it like it's common. Something you can't control and treating it like something you can control. We're we're hitting at the heart of what our paradigms for God need to look like. Does that make sense? Okay, let's look at one more verse. So God is a consuming fire. He's a jealous God, which means this out of control thing is like that bear. If, if you make an idol of the wrong thing, that affection and that respect, you're going to be given that idol that should be going to him. He's not, he's not going to be okay with that. He's not going to be okay with it. Jealousy and love go hand in hand. Jealousy is a form of love when a a duty that's owed to you from the object that owes you love is given to something else. You become jealous. Envy is a totally different thing. God cannot be envious. Envy is I want to be you. I feel small. I feel insecure. I feel depressed. I feel like I got cheated at birth. I wish I could be Miley Cyrus. You know what I mean? Like it's it's envy. Envy. It's like, I, I, I'm small, I want to be somebody who's bigger or have the things that somebody bigger has. God can't envy. It would be a, a form of him worshiping something that's smaller than him. God would be committing idolatry. It's a w- weird concept, that's why he doesn't do it. But God can be jealous, why? A parent can be jealous. Man, when my daughters go to school and they care more about the other kids there, like my six-year-old, just, it just bugs me. <laughs> like, that's just a snot-nosed little six-year-old friend of yours, you know. I'm your dad. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I wish your affections were here, not there. That's jealousy. God can be jealous. God's a consuming fire. So chapter 12 of Hebrews it goes on and says, if we, if we start further up in in uh, chapter 12, it's this really interesting thing, and it, it, it's talking back to Exodus and saying, you haven't been brought to this Mount Sinai that you can't touch. That's not where you're being brought to meet God. You're being brought to this new heavenly Jerusalem, which is so much cooler. 
There's so much more joy. There's so much more singing. There's so much more worship over here than like in the desert with Mount Sinai. That was like fear of God plus nothing. This is like plus something. It's this cool new heavenly Jerusalem, etc. But then it closes with this warning. Verse 28 of chapter 12, Hebrews. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, we're being given this thing that is like where nothing can touch it. Nobody can come against the walls. Nobody can bring it down. Nobody can, it's like when you cross the, the, the Red Sea and you know you're good, like nothing's gonna get away. It's like you're safe. This kingdom of God that can't be touched, can't be shaken, you're safe here, okay? Now you're safe. Well, what's our approach to God? Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. And so in the middle of being with God and being redeemed by God and everything's kind of good and we're supposed to give thanks and it's wonderful and we're supposed to worship him with reverence and awe. The word awe is the same as fear. So we're supposed to worship him and fear God because our God is a consuming fire, man. It's, it's, it's beyond our control. We can't get a hold of it. We have to respect it. I learned early on when I was a Christian that, that when we worship, there's a lot of different ways you can worship, man. When you go downtown today and you give money to the person begging, and I've done both sides of this, okay? So this is, I mean, I'm as guilty as everyone. The interesting thing is we do the very thing we're not commanded to in Scripture like all the time. So what do people that are poor and begging do? They cry out. It's what, it's what begging is, right? Hey, Help me out. I need whatever and whatever. What do we do when we decide that, well, this person probably is making like 50 bucks an hour begging and could get out of this if they wanted to and da 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 We tune out the cry of the poor person. And the funny thing is the scripture says, do not avoid or tune out the cry of the poor. Do not turn a blind eye to the poor. So, I mean, we, we get so used to doing comfortably what Scripture says we're not supposed to do. Anyways, it doesn't matter what that person is, whether he's making 50 bucks an hour or not. If God moves you to give, he's not going to punish you for what that person does with their money. He's going to look at your intentions and your heart and your motives and say, I love that you're still tender enough and compassionate enough to say, you know what, whatever situation that person's in, it's not the same as the situation I'm in. I'm pretty blessed. There might be other ways I can help that person, smarter ways I can help that person, but I'm not gonna tune out the cry of the less fortunate or the poor. And that goes further than just the guy on the street. It goes to international issues or national issues that it's easy because there's a distance. And so we know there's a cry there, but we just kind of go, I don't have to really touch that. But that's a form of worship. Do you get that? You are doing something where you're making an offering and you're doing it because you're motivated by what God commands you to do and that's pleasing to God. When you go on a mountaintop to read the Bible, that's worship. When you go spend time with your your mother or your father um, because they're your mother or your father, that's worship. It's honoring them. God actually wanted you to do that. When we sing, it's also worship. It's not synonymous with worship. It's not like the only thing that worship is. 
we call it worship. We come on a Sunday morning, we sing, and we call it worship. It's, it's not the only thing that can be worship. It's certainly a way that we can worship. Does that make sense? In the Bible, one of the ways they worship God is with singing and instruments. So when we come on Sundays, what we're doing is okay. It's good. It's worship. It's not the only kind of category of worship. But what happens when we begin to think that singing is the be-all, end-all? And what is singing really about? Singing is really about at the heart level and its emotions. It's using art forms for emotions. When we don't understand the sacrifice and the hard work side of worship, and we think all it is is singing, we begin to let the emotion side take all sorts of control. And eventually we start singing songs that are like, you swap out your girlfriend's name, and it's the same song. And and you you begin to sing all sorts of things that put us in this sense of power. I want to touch you, God. I want to feel your face. I want to, and it's like, you begin to go, wait a second. (laughs) Even the people that come to the heavenly Jerusalem that can't be shaken, even the ones that are redeemed, still worship with reverence and awe because God is a consuming fire. We get comfortable having God be small and in a box. He's like a nice little pet. And we, we, with our words and our, our emotions and even the songs we sing, begin to reflect this view of God. And there's a sense in which we've got to step back and say, when we de- declare the praises of God, we're declaring the praises of a really big, crazy, wild, out of control God. What was the name of that bear, Kip, you were talking about this week? Bart the Bear? It's like the bear in all those movies in the 90s. Kip knew the name, Bart the Bear. It's like, it's, it's this wild God that we have to respect and be in awe of. So what does that all have to do with this verse in Proverbs, this yeah, yeah verse? Um, Proverbs, let's just read it again. It's the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And this is, a, is what's called in, in Hebrew a parallelism. It's, you say the same thing two different ways. And so the knowledge of the Holy One, holy is God set apart by himself. We can't cross, we can't come to Mount Sinai because he's holy, he's different, he's other, he's bigger. And so knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. I now understand how life fits in, how the categories play out, what the values really look like because that right there puts the other things into perspective. So Fear of the Lord, being in awe, having this reverent fear of God is, is where wisdom begins. And when I have knowledge of the Holy One, then, then understanding comes about. It is understanding. So I want to I try and map this out for us. Kip bought me a cool toy. Check it out. I get to draw and you guys get to see. It's, it's a cool toy. Um... So here's the deal. We have things in our life that are different sizes. Is it working? Yeah? Kip told me to trust it, not to look behind me. (laughs) We have different sized things in our life. This is and this isn't a judgment thing, but I'm just using it as a symbol. Audi, 
I, m most of my best friends have Audis. Justin had an Audi. There you go, Justin. Um, it's, just, it's just representative, so don't take it the wrong way. But status symbols, um, comfort, um, ease, sex. This is a God for a lot of you. Um, fashion. What, what's on the outside really ruling everything that goes on with you? Control. It's a big one. Someone give me another one. Just, it doesn't matter. There's, we could put a million things here. What's that? What? One at a time. I'm just kidding. Um, let's just say our, our appetites. I don't know how to spell that on the spot. So, um, so check out how this really works. What do you think you're going to give the most credence to? Whatever's biggest. But we begin to look at it and realize that there's a lot of different options in life. My mom said, I'm your mom, you're supposed to obey me. Yeah. There's other options out there. Just give me a half hour. Um, and when we find something that's bigger, we like more, we will make that our decision-making paradigm. Or this control, our decision-making paradigm. So how does that look? Well, control. Uh, I like to be in control. I just lost a lot of my money. I need to find another way to leverage to get back in control. Um, so I'm going to try and do this. I'm going to try and do that. I'm going to become a lot less generous and a lot more stingy because I've got to get that money back to get in control. And then if I try and I try and I try and it doesn't happen, what's my attitude towards God? I'm pissed off. God, you did this to me. I was in control, and now look at me, and I, I'm miserable. It's your fault. Um, sex is the ultimate trading for a moment um, all the blessings that God would give you if you trusted him to bring you blessings rather than what you just in the moment, the urges, whatever are. Fashion, it's like saying that character and the fruit of the spirit, which is going to bring this goodness and this blessing and this joy and this peace, that, that I'm not going to nurture that I'm actually going to go a different route because if I just dress myself, clothe myself in a certain way, I'll be able to control people or control how they view me. So I'm going to obsess about staying out in front of the game with fashion. The crazy, that's the verse, by the way. I mean, the verses in the Bible about women, you know, it's junior high boys love throwing them at junior high girls, and that's why a lot of girls begin to hate those verses. You know what I mean? But if you really get at the heart of what a lot of the verses about women have to do, it's, it's all about helping them understand the character things that are, that are involved with women, how God's going to bless you. So the verse about don't adorn yourself with all the, these things. Instead, clothe yourself with this nobility, this noble character. It's not just trying to control you. It's saying, look, this is how it works. Um, so you lay it down. You follow what I say, says God, 
and you'll find these blessings. If you try to do it yourself, if you try to get all the good things by just controlling fashion, it's not gonna work. And you're making that bigger than me in what I'm saying. So what begins to happen, ease, holy cow. I'm not a big guilt guy, but I know a way to make us all feel guilty. Total up the amount of time you spend on movies and TV and then tell me how much time you've spent journaling, reading your Bible, or in prayer. Uh, you know, please don't look at me. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Like, ease is, it's like the American thing, you know, is, is just entertainment and passive culture. We worship that. So when these things become bigger and God becomes smaller, how do you, how do your, what's your decision-making paradigm? I'm going to start here and get my ducks in a row. And then when, I'm, when I've got some leftover time, I might give a nod to God. We make idols of these things. We're doing a sermon series. We're going to start from now until Christmas to do with the fear of the Lord and, and how we make idols of things. And we're just going to call it Big God because, I mean, if I can boil it down to any one thing that I, I really care about for this church. A couple of us went to a church conference this week. It's like all these gizmos and all these cool messages and all this cool other stuff. And most of it's just smoke and mirrors. And Brandon and I are sitting there and we're like, man, what do we really yearn for for our congregation? It's like, man, we, it's like it's the same emotion we have for our kids. We just yearn for all of us growing and maturing and experiencing the blessings from that. We, we yearn for that. It's, how does that come? It doesn't come by giving you smoke and mirrors and cool experiences. It comes by all of us understanding our God is a consuming fire. And because of that, I'm actually going to listen to what he has to say. I'm actually going to follow him. Because in every situation in life, you can grade it out. And you can say, um, my fear of God, my reverence for God dictates what I do. He has an opinion. In his Bible, he says what I should do in this situation. I just lost everything. Guess what? When I'm weak, I'm strong. I can trust God. That's what it means to have faith. I'm not going to curse him. The whole story of Job is built around this. Satan's going, yeah, of course Job likes you. You're giving him all the good stuff. God says, okay, take it from him. And I'll show you the nobility of his character because he'll still trust me. So when God takes all the control or all the money or all the comfort or all the ease and Job got worked in all these things all simultaneously and Job still trusted God. That's what faith is. So in every situation you're in, there's something where God speaks more loudly. I, I envy that person. I wish I had their life. Why? God made you. He gifted you. He gave you those experiences, even if they were traumatic, because he can redeem those and use those as part of his kingdom to help reach other people. If you just follow God, if you just trust God, this was the crazy thing about when, when I became a Christian. It was really all about one thing, man, everything else, everything is just bunk. All I want to do is just follow God, do what God says. And you got the fraternity guys, you got other Christians. Everybody's just annoying me. I only want to hear one thing. God, what do you want me to do? I've been doing that since I was 22. I don't always do it well, but all I care about, if you really cut me open, it's not that I always get it right, but I always desire that one thing because I've learned. It's really simple. It'll always go better. It will always go better. So the, 
you begin to realize, I don't know if this is going to go off the screen, that the more you fear God, the easier life gets. And the less you fear God and you chase all these other things, the harder life gets. Does that make sense? I, I, I'm reading a book where this guy's talking about chess players and he says, the interesting thing about expert chess players is that everybody thinks because they're experts that they have more options available to them with what they want to do with that chess piece. Does that make sense? Here's the chess board, here's the pieces. That guy's an expert. I bet he knows like a thousand things he could do right there. And he says that's actually an ignorant um, understanding of the laity, the, the non-chess people. The reality is the better you get at chess, the less moves you can really make. Because you begin to understand how most of them are less good than the one that is best. And so the more chess moves, um, like the better you are, the less the actual uh, chess moves available to you. You refine it to where at any given moment there's really one best move. It's completely different than what we think. And with God, it's the same way. The more we invest, the more we fear God, the more we see a big God, the more it's like, there's a lot of other stuff going on, but that's the thing that really matters. It, it could consume me. And it's jealous, so if I, if I walk, it's gonna, it wants me to follow it, to be in awe of it. it. God wants me to follow him and reverence and worship. So the more this happens, the more we begin to realize there's only one question at any moment. God, what do you, what do you want me to do? We don't understand that follow God is, is actually deeper than we think it is. Jesus says, follow God. We're like, or Jesus says, follow me. We're like, okay, yeah, I did that last week. Or I did that in junior high. Now what do I do? And we don't understand discipleship. Discipleship is all about follow me, meaning at every moment there's something I'm coaching you to learn how to do. And the more I coach you, the more you understand it intuitively up to the point that you're Christ-like. Christ-like means this. Jesus was once asked, he says, look, I only do and I only say what the Father tells me to do and what the Father tells me to say. I understand at all moments the decision-making paradigm that exists when God is big. And Jesus is discipling us and he's saying, the more you get this, the more you understand God and your relationship to God, the more you're gonna understand at all moments that that's the question you're asking. God, what would you want me to do? And you submit to that. The more you're gonna become like me, Christ-like, and the more simple life becomes, there's only one option at every moment. Does that make sense? So when we say follow God, we're calling people to discipleship. And you're like, well, but how do I know what God wants? That's what should drive you to reading your Bible. That's what should drive you to prayer. Because it matters enough that you invest yourself in the thing that is most dominant. I'm going to draw one last drawing and then we're out of time. Jeez, you know what? We, we're just really out of time. Um, we'll just end here and then maybe we'll just pick it up next week. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and pray for us and Maybe that's God's, I don't know, maybe it's just my way of talking too long. I don't know. We'll pick it up next week, though, and just, we're just going to chase this thing for the next couple months and try to make the things that should be little, little, the things that should be big, big, because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. When we get that right, we begin to learn a decision-making paradigm. Knowledge of God, knowledge of the Holy One 
is understanding, when that is centered, we understand how things should grade out in life, what our priorities should be, where we should invest our time, our money, our energy, how we should even understand or see realities like who we are or who other people are. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. If we get that right, everything else, like the chess thing, begins to become easy, simple, in just one direction. Father, we, uh, we have a hard time being obedient and we wander. We're prone to wander. And I just pray that your grace would continue to shine on us and that as we understand how gracious you are, how patient you are with us, that in all of that, we would just be overwhelmed and we would respect and be in fear and awe of you, want nothing more than to worship you and seek to grow in our maturity and our ability to follow. Let all our decisions come back to you to see you as the dominant thing. Father, I pray for this church. Let that be true of all of us collectively. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.